This podcast contains a frank commentary of a gay man navigating his way through the gay scene in the 1990s onwards. Although there is no explicit material on here, it does contain mild references of gay sex and drug taking. Although I take full responsibility of my actions, I do feel that the politics and the taboos of the 90s didn't help matters and were a contributing factor to my sexual and drug addiction. If you continue listening, you accept the fact that you may find some of the subjects uncomfortable. Names and places have been anonymised to protect the identity of individuals and of places. Nineteen ninety-three, so seventeen, not quite eighteen. I did celebrate my eighteenth birthday. I could not wait another year of not drinking in my gay local. I did come clean though when I celebrated my nineteenth. One of the guys I met in one of the public loos, we got to know each other outside of them, and we frequented London bars. This was where I first came across drag queens and cabaret artists. Cabaret artists such as Regina Fong, Katrina and the Boy, although if Katrina and the Boy are still on the circuit, the Boy is probably now the old git, something Katrina herself said once on stage. Regina Fong had such a repertoire that the audience simply asked her what to do. There was a plate-waving song singing about a mouse. Where? Under the stair. There was a reason why it was picked in It's a Sin. She was a brilliant artist who we lost at the age of 56 from cancer in 2003. Little did I realise, watching these artists on stage, that I would become one four years later. I remember going back with London lads many a time and my friend going home a lot on his own. I do also remember the discussions around this too. I would like to say that this was a one-off, but it is something I have always found myself doing. If a guy looks at me a certain way or smiles at me a certain way, that's me gone. That's me drinking up, going back to his flat and do what gay men do best. This is possibly why, when I go to London on my own, I do it alone. So that I don't leave a group because a cute guy in the corner has been eyeing me up and I cannot say no. Something else that gets me into trouble. More on that later. Even at this age, I have no clue how many guys I have met. Who I went back with, but I was taking precautions. I was HIV awareness trained. I was a stickler for safe sex. I loved the attention I was getting. Even though I don't class myself as good looking, even though I've been told many times that I am. I think it's because that due to the fact I was bullied at school, I was getting more positive attention from guys. I wasn't getting punched and kicked. I was getting hugs, intimacy and a lot more. I was still frequenting the public loos as it was an addiction, the chance of getting caught either by a member of the public or the police. My sex drive was high then, it still is now, it hasn't turned down one bit. 
That alone, I think, is why it has got me into trouble one too many times. This, and coupled with an addictive personality, this is a dangerous combination. But more on that later. As I was staying out constantly overnight, I had a workable excuse. I would ring up my parents and say I was staying over at a friend's house, which I never did. It only worked because my parents never had their phone number. They trusted me I was telling the truth. Sorry, Mum. 1993 was my first Pride. I went back with a few guys from the Friday before from the pub and we went up. This was the days when it was free. All the bar tents were all the gay bars of London. But I was 17 and I only had a fiver for my drinks. Coca-Cola was my lot. I lost the guys I went up with and to this day I have no clue how I got home. This was the first time I found out it was okay to be gay. But it also had a very dark undertone with it. Gay guys were getting together in one place with the backdrop of a gay serial killer around London. So, not only could you get AIDS, there was also a high chance of being killed or murdered for just being a homosexual. This was not the age to grow up gay in. This is my message to the younger crowd of the LGBT plus community. This was the stark reality of the gay scene in the 90s. You had no access to gay sex education. There was an epidemic going around killing young gay men. And not only that, you were being punched and kicked. On top of that, you also had a serial killer on the loose. This was the first time I met transsexuals, mostly guys who had gender dysphoria wanting to be female. As at that time, there was nowhere for them to go. So before the gender reassignment surgery, they would meet up on the gay scene, as it was the least unwelcoming of the communities. In those days, the gay bars would have the gays, the lesbians, the bisexuals and the trans. And not one group mixed with the other. One particular late night pub had a bunch of transvestites and transsexuals in one corner of the bar. They didn't mix to talk to anyone outside their group. As Douglas Murray adequately put it, gay men and gay women have almost nothing in common. Gay men often characterise lesbians as dowdy and boring. Lesbians often characterise gay men as silly and displaying a failure to grow up. Meanwhile, bisexuals continue to be viewed as gays in some form of denial and there is tremendous dispute on whether the T's are the same thing as everyone else or an insult to them. Madness of crowds. Remember, when I came out, it was the GLB community. The G and the L got switched. The trans only came along as they needed a movement for themselves and some of the rights we were fighting they wanted too. I'm going to be really upfront here. I have no issues with trans people at all. My brother is trans. I have friends that are trans. But when it comes to our rights, they are completely different. Let me also make a point that once a trans person had all their surgery in the 90s, they came off the gay scene and mixed back into normal society. 
thus shunning themselves away from the gay scene. This happened a lot. This was also when I realised how bad the HIV and AIDS epidemic was with gay men. Many a time I would ask in a bar, where is so-and-so? The answer always came back, pneumonia or cancer. Code words for AIDS. Yes, we didn't like using that word ourselves, and I think it caused more harm than good. 1994 In 1994, I finally turned 18. For real, not the faux birthdays I had earlier. My friend, who I met in the pub in 1992, now knew it was okay for me to go to the London pubs, which we did. These generally were in Soho and just outside of the West End, so I knew there was a bigger gay scene on my doorstep. I did try further education again, but because I preferred to troll around the public loos around the town surrounding me, I missed lessons. I would ring and meet up people who I had phone numbers. Remember, I was using telephone boxes. I frequently met up with them. This is where I found gay porn. If you watched it to sin, you know I'm not talking about Pornhub. Yes, I was able to see men in their birthday suits standing to attention, or if you were able to get the foreign magazines, full-on sex. Woohoo! Some of those men I visited had VHS porn videos that had been copied so often you could just about see what they were doing. None of this HD stuff we have today. Oh, speaking of magazines, we had the boys' magazine, not the small glossy thing we have today, oh no. This was a broadsheet. I used to take them home, as the best porn material was in there. There were male escorts and adult phone numbers. We had to make do in the 90s. I used to hide them under the bed. Try hiding ten copies of the Times under your bed, and you'll see how hard this was. But more on that later. The pink paper was also like this too but I vaguely remember that boys was gay men-centric and the pink paper was lesbian-centric. Oh yes, I had more men, some married with kids, some gay, some bisexual, and I think this is where things started to get a bit murky in the safe sex department. Remember, I was a stickler for safe sex. I think, but can't be too sure, where I started to let my guard down. I can't remember a day when I stopped using precautions, but looking back, as I was having more sex, the likelihood is that I was being less careful, as we shall see in 1995. 1995. In 1995, I landed a job at our leisure centre. One of the managers there I knew from my public loo days so a slightly uncomfortable conversation was had there. This was also the time my youngest brother was at secondary school and was getting bad treatment because his eldest brother was gay. I didn't know this at the time, so I asked my mum what the deal was with my brother. I would like to say this was at home with a cup of tea or in a pub. No. My coming out story to my mum was on the bus to work. My mum said that my brother heard some stuff at school and I asked what it was finally came out, only to be told my parents had this conversation 18 months previous. 
I asked work to send me home as I told them what happened. As there was a bar at the leisure centre, they allowed me a Budweiser before setting me off home. Yeah. Home. As I was on a zero-hour contract, it meant we got sent home some days. So if money allowed me, I went to London and one of the barmen told me about gay saunas. Without going into too much detail here, a gay sauna is not for health reasons. Your average gay sauna has a steam room, a sauna and a few relaxation areas. And if they were real upper class, they'd have videos on. Let me make your mind wonder for a second. They are used exactly the way you are thinking about them. Yes, home went via one of these venues as I didn't want to have the coming out discussion with my dad just yet. I frequented these a lot. There were about two or three I used to go to. I remember being in one, listening to two older gents talking about us young twinks and being told basically you can't be too picky in a sauna. There were, of course, the usual type. The young gay man who thought he was drop-dead gorgeous and no matter how young and good-looking you were, no one was going to have him. Then you had guys around my age, 18 to 25. We, of course, have just found these places out and, oh, hell yeah, we were going to have fun. Then we get to the oldies. Basically, anyone over the age of 26. The older guys used to fall into two camps. The first would be that you would want to touch them first. Whereas the others would prefer to touch you first. And second. And third. And wait on a bloody minute. I'm not a piece of meat. This always has been a problem on the gay scene. There's a certain type of man that just won't take no for an answer. In those days, I thought it was the older gent. Nowadays, I've seen guys younger than me do the same. It's now no longer ageist. This was also the year I went to Pride. I so wish I was a fly on the wall at my parents. The news was on, and my dad said to my mum, Is that where our son is? My mum said, Yes. My brother who was in the room at the time, looked at my mum, then at my dad, then at my mum again. And my mum said, yes, your brother's gay. And apparently that was the end of the conversation. This was around the time I had my first HIV and AIDS scare. Someone I went with just calmly mentioned to somebody else that they had HIV and it was unprotected. I didn't want to have the test in my hometown, so I went to London for it. I don't know where I could go, but thankfully, down to the HIV AIDS theatre productions, we were taken to the London Lighthouse, a hostel for those with advanced AIDS to live less shamelessly in their last few weeks or days. The guy, who I remember was very cute, gave me leaflets and details to where I could get tested. I got tested, and yes, like it's a sin, I had to wait for six weeks. Trust me. That was six weeks of hell. I did get my test results back and they came back negative. And I celebrated the way I knew best. And that was in a sauna. As my hours were being mucked about at the leisure centre, I left and decided to give holiday camps a go again. This time in Somerset. 
I was there for six weeks until my friend talked me out of staying there and I came back home. But during that time there, I had a fling with the entertainment manager. We thought we were being coy on the first meet, sneaking to his chalet and then me sneaking back to mine ready for work. Imagine my horror at breakfast finding out you are the latest gossip of the holiday camp when people asked you. Had a good time. Definitely inferring you were up to no good. So I went back and I stayed with my friend, the friend I first met in 1992, at his house for a few weeks. But I couldn't cope with the noise from the downstairs flat. I couldn't sleep at all. We went to see Sunset Boulevard and so we didn't pay for the tickets to be sent to us. I went up to get them. To make it worth my while... I trolled around London and missed the last train back. So I went to a gay nightclub and met a guy and went home with him. This, I hate to say, was the start of me going missing in London. I suppose, looking back, it was because I was chasing something that was unobtainable. Don't ask me what it was, I'm still trying to work that out for myself today. I did have a fling up there. It came to an end when I went with his lodger. And that came to an end when I picked up another guy in Vauxhall. Although he had the last laugh, as this guy's house was five doors away from his mum. This was the start of my trips to London. I found saunas, clubs, gay adult clubs and enjoyed myself. You may guess at this point, me being monogamous wasn't going to happen. This was also the time I found the Rocky Horror Picture Show at the Prince Charles Cinema. I knew all the lines to throw back at the screen and got myself a small cult following in the process. A few people came up to me at various times and said, We always come back, as you always seem to keep it topical. I knew that film word for word. Even today, I can sit and watch it and come out with lines that are even topical today. This was midnight viewing. So it meant that I was in London all night. This meant that most Fridays after the cinema, I would go and get my end away at a number of clubs. There were also times I used to go back with guys too. Again, looking back, I seemed to be chasing something that was unobtainable. From this point on, safer sex was down to the other guy. My HIV AIDS training started to dwindle away from me. So five years in, at this point I will say I have had counselling for various issues. But the sexual side of my addictions were never taken up through any of my consultations. It is only now, through doing this, that I have found that things were escalating, even at this early point in time. In just five years, I went from cruising around public loos to gay adult clubs. Remember, I was only 21. I suppose from the age of 15, the damage had already been done. Being told by the media that your lifestyle was a death sentence. Being told by a person in authority that if you carry on with your lifestyle, you'll be dead. And the fact that your first gay pride had a serial killer on the loose is going to leave a lasting and damaging effect on a young man's gay life. This with the shadow of the real fear of AIDS, which did happen to me in 1995 in the guise of finding out I may have caught HIV, showed how dangerous the lifestyle was to me. And I suppose a part of me just got in love with that danger. Let's also remember that the saunas and the gay adult clubs were illegal too. The no more than two in a room part of the law was still in force. These places got raided from time to time. 
One club had a red light that flashed when the police called. The door staff would keep on talking to them until the club members just looked like club members having a drink. This happened a lot. If I was 15 now, hell. If I was 13 now, sex education for gay men would just be a tiny bit more than regurgitating the law. I don't know if my first counted could be counted as two boyfriends. We hid it in secrecy because of the taboo and the age of consent. Even more reason. I suppose nowadays it would be less frowned upon and maybe, just maybe, we would come out at school as boyfriends. I just don't know. I know of children now being okay to tell their parents at the age of 13 that they are gay. This I never had. The law and the education of the 90s made that very difficult and very scary to come out. Again, not to mention the dark cloud of HIV. As I thought public toilets were the only way to meet, and as the free gay press makes it easier to find adult bars than for their straight counterparts, for someone with a high sex drive and an addictive personality, this was the start of a very dangerous situation. I am now at the point of getting undeniably close to even more people I am in touch with today. Please, please be assured, I will still be keeping names and places anonymous, as I am only sticking to the sexual and drug addiction side of my life. Everything else is simply unimportant here. Episode 3 will begin in 1996 and will be available on the 2nd of April. I've been told to be promotional at this point, so here it is. Please follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram using at a 90s teen. You can also comment on the episode by clicking on the episode webpage link on your phone or by visiting the podcast page of my website. I'm currently posting Instagram photos and video galleries that complement this series. However, they do explicitly show the downward spiral of an addict, so please view with caution. There is a poll on my main website, which I will repost on Twitter and Facebook, so I know which direction I should go after the 30th of April. All votes will be greatly appreciated. Now, back to the credits. This podcast was written, produced and edited by a 90s teenager. All music on this podcast is available at Purple Planet. If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, please visit the link in the description notes of this episode. Thank you for listening.